Hi everyone, this is Working Title, the podcast where we, four intrepid, handsome, intelligent, and entirely fraudulent reviewers, watch and review IMDb's top 250 English language movies as of November 2019, going from bottom to top. So watch along with us, and... It was beauty, film the beast. Uh, let me just get refreshed on my notes here. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Working Title, the podcast where we review what some people of the internet think are the best movies in the world, or at least of the English language. Um, this week, we are reviewing Kill Bill Volume 2. Now, I think one thing I want to mention here is it's an unspoken rule of our podcast that if you haven't seen a movie, you can't watch it until we review it. Uh that's a rule for us reviewers. If I haven't seen a movie, I can't watch it until it comes up on this list. And unfortunately, I have not seen Kill Bill Volume 1. So I watched this one entirely without context, though I think everyone else knew what was going on. So this will be an interesting one for all of us. Um, so what is Kill Bill? Uh, of course, it's a Quentin Tarantino movie, kind of a martial arts movie, kind of has elements of a Western, um, sort of pulpy and uh, notably, it was a four-hour-plus movie. It's a single movie that was released in two separate volumes just because the length was so long. So these two form one cohesive movie, though, of course, they were only talking about volume two, which may make as little sense for the listeners as it did for me watching it, but we're just going to roll with it. Now, before we get too deep into what happens in this movie and what we think of it, let's introduce the record or the... Let's introduce the reviewers here in the studio with us. I'm Jack. You can call us recording off artists. <laughs> one could, but should one? <laughs> anyway, I'm Jack, and if I had to name a James Bond movie that you'd find at a Dollar Tree, I would call it Learner's Permit to Kill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm Mike, uh, and uh, my my Bond film would be called Moon Shoveler. <laughs> Hello, I'm Shane, and mine would be Casino with Cheese. <laughs> oh, that's got layers. <laughs> it just it just kicked in the second layer. <laughs> hey Shane, what do they call a casino with cheese in France? Casino. <laughs> <God damn> it. <laughs> Almost. That's good. That's very relevant too. <laughs> Mine is not relevant. I'm June, and my Bond knockoff would be called the Cannonball Run. <laughs> <laughs> so before we start talking about what happens in this movie, uh, Mike's gonna walk us through it all. I think the things you need to know: uh, martial arts film, Quentin Tarantino. It's got Uma Thurman. And, uh, of course, the whole thing has a lot of the Tarantino regulars that we don't see all of them in volume two. Yeah, Mike, do you want to tell us what happens in this movie? Sure. So as Tarantino style, this is broken out into a, a bunch of chapters for the story. And we start with chapter six, um, and it takes place in um, El Paso at a wedding chapel. So the first scene is Uma Thurman, who is on the floor, and a unknown assailant is standing above her. And they're having a discussion, and she refers to him as Bill before she is shot in the head. Um, specifically, she says, Bill, the baby is yours. And then she is shot. 
Um, it goes a little bit of a flashback, but the same wedding chapel. And uh, the title of this chapter is The Massacre at Two Pines. Uh, so it's taking place during a rehearsal with Uma Thurman and her um, husband-to-be, Tommy, and a few friends. And they're talking to the, uh, the curators of this chapel. During their conversations with this older couple, Uma Thurman is insulted by the, the, the wife of the uh, curator who says uh, that there's nobody there to sit with Uma's side of the family and that Tommy has way too many people. So Uma goes out to get some breath and as she stands up and starts walking toward the back of the chapel, uh, she hears a uh, shinobu flute playing out the door. And as she goes outside, it turns out the person playing the flute is Bill, who is the man that uh, shot her in the head. They have a brief discussion about where she has been, and Bill has tracked her down, and she asks Bill to be nice, and to, <clears throat> and if he wants, he can come in and sit with her at this, this rehearsal. Uh, Bill is obviously upset that Uma's been missing, and it kind of fills in a little bit of the gaps that I'm sure is a little bit confusing to only one person here. Yes. <laughs> oh. Uma takes Bill inside, and Tommy, her fiancé, comes over to meet him, and Uma says that Bill is her father, which Bill does not, you know, particularly like it because it's very apparent that uh, they used to be together. Um, at the very end, it's pulling away from the chapel. We see four assassins show up with uh, machine guns and they enter into the building and uh, start shooting up the place. And that's the end of ch- chapter six. Yeah, I'll be the first to say uh, <laughs> I had to do a lot of learning real quick here. Uh, hey you got the the cliff notes there yeah bill's bad killed everyone yeah really uh actually it kind of did me a favor by having this flashback at the beginning of this movie um otherwise this would have been super confusing but what did you all think of this mike you knew that was a shinobo flute that was impressive that's yeah damn also david carradine awesome god he's so good in this yeah i We'll have plenty of opportunities to talk about this throughout the entire movie, but honestly, uh, David Carradine, who is the actor who plays Bill, is honestly, in my opinion, the linchpin of this whole thing. Not only is it a shinobu flute, but Bill, the guy who plays Bill, um, actually made that flute himself. What? David Carradine's a flautist? He works with, um, he works with like bamboo and he makes Asian flutes. Is this like a method acting thing? I mean, it's Tarantino. They're all method actors. <laughs> Did they all have to kill six people each before they started filming? <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't they cast Daniel Day-Lewis? He would have done it for the part. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been murdered the entire cast. Also, y'all catch... I mean, y'all probably caught it, but uh, Samuel L. Jackson just having some weird cameo. Yeah, it's funny because... He just sits there. The, uh, the first time I watched this movie, I did not know that was Samuel. This is the first time I've seen it that I recognize that. Yeah, same. Uh, I did not recognize that, but that probably doesn't surprise anybody. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he just says he plays with everyone and sits there and smokes. But Rufus, he's the man. <laughs> did uh, <laughs> Does this count towards one of our film noir sagas? Well, let's see. <laughs> we got we to hit the criteria. Is it, is it black and white? This chapter yes. is. Okay, so we got we got the chapter at least film noir. Um, what was the other criteria? Smoking. There's, there's, there's definitely yeah. A, there's smoking cigarettes. There's definitely a femme fatale. 
and a uh, internal monologue. And there's a crime. Boom. The cops show up. So that's the first of many genres that we've hit uh, in Kill Bill Volume 2. Yeah, this does hit a lot. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Another thing about the black and white is, I think I'm correct in saying this, but whenever it's a flashback or in the past, it is in black and white. Uh, not throughout the whole movie, if the I remember. Coffin, no, is in black and white, but it does get used quite a bit. And I think most the memory sequences are. I thought it was just the beginning. I didn't. I don't recall seeing. No, because the coffin is the one-eyed lady when she. No, okay, you know. you're, you're right because when he later on it's, it becomes color. We'll talk about that later. But I think what it is, and you let's not go into it now, but keep this in mind maybe think about it i think it's black and white at her lowest points let's just try that one out Mm, that that is something we'll see yeah Yeah. so uh, i'll be the first to say all my notes start in the next chapter so yeah i think (laughs) yeah it's kind of a recap the first scene well yeah if you've seen it just like fills you in on well even if you haven't seen it, it's kind of just like here's where we are and this is why i think this episode is going to focus on jack's uh, reaction I mean, Jack's not going to understand it until he sees the prequel. But <laughs> yeah, super excited to watch the prequel. Mike, were you going to say something? <laughs> yeah, the uh, really the only other thing that I wanted to say about this this first chapter was um, Uma Thurman's facial reactions throughout it were really really spot on. You could see when she first hears the flute. Um, so in in the first chapter, if you watch Uma Thurman's facial reactions to hearing the flute, you can see that at first she looks kind of happy, like surprised happy, and then you kind of get a little bit of dread that comes into her face, and that kind of goes toward the fact that she's been running away from Bill, Um, and then when she goes outside, when she's looking at him, you can see again that she's kind of still in love with Bill. Yeah, there was one moment that was a little strange, and you know, of course I was able to piece it together with a bit of context, especially as the movie went on, but when she turned around and thanked bill for being cool about her getting married and then kissed him that was a bit of a bit of a trip um oh i could definitely see how that would have been confusing if uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh she's like this is my dad You're like oh okay <laughs> he looks nice <laughs> i mean it was pretty clear from the get-go that he wasn't actually her dad but that was a real curveball for me in my first time viewing <laughs> I just wonder if any of the wedding party saw that. Like, oh, that's her dad. Is she? That's a weird kiss to give your dad. <laughs> you know, they're from Alabama. You know, it's it's cultural. But I do agree. I think the the meat and bones of this movie kind of starts to hit its stride in the let's, the next chapter. So let's let's carry on. Let's jump into it. So the next chapter is chapter seven, and the title of this chapter is "The Lonely Grave of Paula Schultz." Um, which question? Do any of you know who that is? Paula Schultz. She is the the, the main, or she is from Django Unchained. Wow. Oh, so, so this is the the Django Cinematic Universe. Yep. So what year did Django Unchained come out? That so that was like two thousand eight, uh, two thousand ten, something like that. Yeah, it's fairly recently, I think. So in this part of the of the film, this is Bud's story. And this is the where we're introduced to Bud, who is living in a trailer in the middle of a desert. We start off with, it's a few years after the uh, the massacre at the Two Pines. So Bill is talking to Bud about Uma, 
who is now out for revenge on all of the uh, the people who were involved with this massacre at her wedding uh, rehearsal. But it is also told that uh, she has a Hanzo sword, a Hattori Hanzo sword, which uh, that was given to her in the first movie. And um, the conversation between Bill and Bud is uh, about, you know, Bud has, he pawned his Hanzo sword years ago, and Bill is just giving him forewarning that uh, she's going to come and she's going to try to kill him. Um, which, interestingly, Bud says that she deserves her revenge, and uh, they all deserve to die. Um but also, she deserves to die as well. So, after that, we go and follow Bud to his day job where he works at a strip club. Uh, not a very happy job. As soon as he gets there, he gets called into his boss's office, who is a drug addict, and fires him for being late. Uh, where he goes home, you know, it, this is all showing that his life has really gone downhill since his days of being a uh, assassin and world traveler. Uh, when he gets back, he kind of senses that something's amiss, and uh, we find Uma Thurman is underneath Bud's trailer in her ninja outfit. So Bud goes inside, he sits down, he starts relaxing, and Uma comes out and uh, kicks in his door to surprise attack him. But Bud is sitting in his rocking chair with a, with a shotgun and shoots her in the chest with rock salt. Um, after she falls on the ground and she's, you know, in pain, Bud comes out, sticks her with a needle in, the, in, her, in her butt cheek, and uh, she, right before she passes out, <laughs> Bud pretty much uh, just tells her that she's, she's, this is, the, you know, she's going to die. After that, Bud goes over, takes her Hanzo sword, and calls up the next character, which is another assassin who is named Ellie, and uh, sets up a deal to sell her Hattori Hanzo sword to Ellie for a million dollars the next day. And uh, at one condition that uh, Bud kills uh, Umic Thurman's character. Which, we don't know this in this film until a little bit later, but it, her name in the first film is the Black Mamba. So that's how we know her throughout the entire film. And uh, near the end of this chapter, we end with Bud at a graveyard burying Uma Thurman alive. And that's where you see the gravestone that he's, she's buried at, which was uh, Paula Schwartz. Schultz. Yeah, so just to kick this off, um, one thing that is a little unclear to me... Uh, I, I was kind of aware of this just through cultural osmosis and hearing Kill Bill <laughs> talked about. Um, Mike, you're describing her as Uma Thurman because in the film, for at least this up to this section, they bleep her name out when people discuss her. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they should. So Bill is Bill when he's first talking to Bud. He says her name and it's bleeped out. Yeah, so I didn't quite get that. I mean, like, I get that it's like a stylistic thing, but then a couple chapters later, they just kind of reveal her name and just keep going with it. So it didn't quite add up to me. Yeah, it was just kind of a artistic choice, I guess. I may um, have some insight into that later. It might be a little stretch, but yeah, I'll yeah. It, the next chapter, just but didn't this qu- chapter. Go on. The uh, the thing with the name is. Uh, I think it's it's interesting that it kind of gets played into, especially when it comes to the other assassin that that Bud talks to. His name is Ellie, who is the one eye. She's a she's got an eye patch on, because mm-hmm. um, she also never refers to her as that name until later on as well. They always refer to her as you know either the Black Mamba or that that girl. Yeah. Yeah. My first uh, thing with this chapter is. Uh, Bud goes into his trailer, and then we see, like, 
Uma Thurman, I guess, um, crawl out from under the, the trailer, which is, I think, kind of a little nod to her character being Black Mamba in the, in the first movie. She kind of slithers out from under the trailer, you know? Um, mm. But she's wearing a, she has her face covered. Um, <laughs> and then before she, like, attacks, she takes the mask off. I, I don't understand the thought behind that. <laughs> with, the, with the really big uh, music reveal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I kind of took that as sort of a a riffing on the trope because that's that's the kind of thing you'd see in kind of a a, a B-grade kung fu yeah, movie. Yeah, that's, that, that's true. And so but, much yeah. of what happens in this movie is uh, riffing on tropes or taking them up to an absurd level. One thing I actually really liked is how um, it felt over the top in a lot of scenes in the same way that Sin City did not, not to the same level as Sin City because Sin City was literally a comic book. Um, but when Bud shoots, uh, Uma Thurman's character, she goes flying 20 feet, like hands and legs outstretched in front of her. I, I thought that was fun. I thought, I thought it made it different and not like a too serious movie. It kind of was self-aware. And that's her master assassin plan is I'm just going to kick in the door and stand in front of it with a sword. <laughs> in an era of guns. I, yeah, I was like, huh. Hey, it got her through, well, the, it got her through the first volume. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I noticed here, uh, very small detail, but after Bud shoots her, he goes up and he, he kicks her sword away. And I don't know if you noticed, but that sword impales itself right into this like steel barrel. It I did. noticed that too. I was like, damn, that sword is sharp. Yeah, I was like, do you think that was planned or like an, just an awesome kick by the actor? I, I would be frightened if I was the actor. He miskicks that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> first gone, of all, you, you don't just kick a Hattori Hanzo. Let's, let's <laughs> How get did he that. How not lose a Hanzo? <laughs> no, this was uh, what you're going on about the, the kind of the, the action being a little bit over the top. But that's uh, that's this entire movie is it has really cool um, kind of rhetoric and, and these conversations between the actors and then whenever they do their action scenes it's way over the top so it's it's like witty and then also fun to watch. Well, and I saw like in the intro, did it say RZA did the score or he just helped with the music? So I have a note on that. Um, this will kind of feed into my point. Like what I what I love about tarantino who in reality i get it's kind of like a 50 50 director right like you either like him or you don't he's like maybe only second to maybe like john woo or wes anderson in like recognizable signature style right like -hmm. without knowing any footnotes of a film you can almost instantly tell like boom this is a tarantino film and what to shane's point part of that is the music particularly in the beginning here the song, the music was done by Robert Rodriguez, uh, his longtime accomplice. And Robert Rodriguez, he started a band called Chingon to make the music for Once Upon a Time in Mexico. And he agreed to score Kill Bill Volume 2 for $1 in return hmm. for Tarantino directing a portion of Sin City for $1. Oh, that's, oh, that's right. Yeah. I remember that coming up. Yeah. What I just like the style of Tarantino where he he has his style but it's really not, it's like George Lucas how you can always trace it back to like Flash Gordon and all those other things. You can always trace Tarantino's style to like the 70s and kung fu 
and like you can you can just see it you know what i mean so he has a style but he's kind of just co-opting the style and modernizing it it's really awesome yeah, yeah i don't i don't know if this is me just already knowing that it was a tarantino film but like the way he uses even things like flashbacks and chapters like those are not uncommon things you know but he does it right. in a style that's like like that's tarantino for some reason it's tarantino-esque well i mean if you had any guesses later on in the film no one's wearing shoes ever, hey that's so. my point <laughs> <laughs> before you move on to the music does anybody know who quincy jones is and what the song ironside is no yeah quincy jones is a r&b no no is it yeah, he's like a pretty famous composer. It's the song that they, whenever she sees one of the the four assassins, it plays that that like in your face. Dun, yeah, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but it specifically it it has it in it says on the, the subtitles the name of the the composer and the and the song title. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure Quincy Jones is like a pretty famous composer. Well, Tarantino doesn't do anything on accident. Why the hell did he put the name of it? What I would say is that that kind of music and the way this movie is over the top. So in contrast with Sin City, which was always over the top, always nonstop, literally comic book in film form. This had just like these little sprinklings of totally over the top, which always just made me laugh or, you know, amused me or engaged me in some way. Like the the whole riff when she sees Bud for the first time, um, I guess this comes up a little later. Uh, but the the kind of over the top stuff, like where she just gets blown out the door, or <laughs> it, it's unexpected because most of the movie is pretty normal. He makes violence so over the top it's almost comical. How about that interaction with Bud with the dip spit on her face? Ugh. She uh, spits blood up at him, and he just like. Hawks on her. <laughs> I know getting ahead of it a little bit, but like that where she goes next is like one of the more intense, I guess, movie moments I've ever experienced. Like we'll we'll get there in a second, but I'm just prefacing it with it is filmed so claustrophobically. <laughs> well, we get a little bit of the it in this chapter too, as here she gets buried. Um and this it's pretty intense it's pretty psychological it's you know she's we're almost what's that she's a she oh yeah um yeah as she gets buried uh we're starting to dip our toes into yet another genre of sort of a, a horror sequence in this movie strange that bud gave her a flashlight like if she he, he told her that he's gonna kill her but he gives her a flashlight still i kind of glossed over the ultimatum it was um a pepper spray or a flashlight? Yeah, I definitely missed like the significance of that and didn't bother to go back. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. What was the deal with the pepper spray? She was so fighting. It was him. because she was wiggling, and he said like, "You can either cooperate, let me bury you easy, and I won't mace you, or you can make this hard and I'll mace you, so you're blind and die blind." Oh, uh, okay. So it's kind of like he was just telling her to stop wiggling. He was just kind of exerting power over her. I think the whole scene is like to get her to accept that she's going to die. Awful, you know. Yeah. But uh yeah, it's intense when they when they put her in and like they hammer it in and like the camera is really close to her and everything. You're just 
are imagining being buried alive and how awful like that has to be the worst way to die the sound design in particular was was what sold that scene um when she's in the coffin all we you know all we see is like very like maybe a little glimpse of reflection or whatever of light but then you can hear every shovel of dirt that's hitting the coffin and it's very loud and and that I think that adds to the ambiance of what's going on. We also flash into black and white at this point, too. Another low spot. That's true. I also like the performance by Uma Thurman. Like, the the way... Because she's like an ultimate badass. Everyone's afraid of her. But she doesn't... She's not the hero that just never... That never loses their cool. Like, she's freaking out. Yeah, she freaks out repeatedly throughout the rest of the film. <laughs> yeah, like... She's not afraid to lose her cool. <laughs> yeah, I after, think. Go ahead, Mike. I was I was just gonna say after the after she gets buried alive, but I think you're about to say that. Go for it. Yeah, I was just gonna say I think this is a good point to go into the next chapter. So chapter eight is called "The Cruel Tutelage of Pei Mei," <laughs> and uh, this is about an, another flashback with Uma Thurman and Bill when they were first starting to work together. That's at least what it implies. And Bill and Uma are are at a campfire in the middle of the night, and uh, Bill is playing his uh, shinobu flute again, and telling a story about uh, a priest and a monk who passed each other in a town. Um, in the story, and the reason this is important is the priest was essentially disrespected by the monk by not giving a nod back to him, and this priest goes to this monk's uh, uh, Shaolin temple and massacres sixties of these Shaolin monks. Uh, it turns out this monk is Pai Mei, who is the um, the martial arts master that has taught Bill and all of Bill's protégés. And Bill is now taking Uma Thurman to see Pai Mei to uh, study under him to join his ranks of assassins, uh, which we know he is particular to women assassin, and just his brother is the only male that was able to work in his uh, organization. So they arrive at the temple. And Bill returns from speaking with Pai Mei, and Uma Thurman was waiting down at the at the car. And Bill's all beat up. It looked like he just really was sparring with Pai Mei. And uh, Pai Mei has agreed to take on Uma Thurman to uh, to train her as the next uh, pupil of Bill. Um, she's kind of talking to Bill and asking, how long is it going to be? And Bill's kind of being vague. He says, it's all up to you. Uh, Bill warns her that Pai Mei is, he's a mean guy and not to mess with him, not to disrespect him, not to give him any sass. And uh, he even says it might be, you know, at least a, a couple of years before she can even kind of give him any kind of sass. So she, Bill leaves, she goes to the top of the temple and meets Pai Mei and they, they spar and Pai Mei is just makes a, you know, a fool out of all of her styles and her martial arts abilities. Um, but agrees after their battle to train Uma Thurman's character, which is where she kind of starts to pick up these techniques that we see later on in the movie, um, specifically when we flash back to her being buried alive. Pai Mei had taught her the like this punch, which is, you know, I guess like one inch punch or whatever you want to call it. And she can punch her way through this wood to free herself from the coffin. Um, another uh, teaching that was brought up about Pai Mei, which comes in later, is a secret technique called the five-point palm exploding heart technique. And not even Bill knows that technique. Yeah, this is hands down the best part of this movie. The Pai Mei training 
chapter because Pai Mei is just a treasure. <laughs> he's amazing. <laughs> With his beard he's always stroking and his quaffed eyebrows. <laughs> And his Yoda-esque movement. Were any of you reminded of the Star Wars, like, Count Dooku Yoda fight? <laughs> he was bouncing around and everything. He stands on her sword at one point. <laughs> and when he does, he says, from here you can see my foot before he kicks her in the face. <laughs> like, Which, again, I think is almost like a self-reflexive moment where Tarantino is referring to his own foot fetish. <laughs> Yeah, of course. You know, we don't this need to we don't need to get subtle about Tarantino's foot fetish in this one. Oh, it's yeah. it's not subtle. <laughs> the, I love uh how Uma Thurman doesn't laugh though as she's doing these moves. She's like, You haven't seen my tiger claw technique <laughs> <laughs> And she's literally punching with like tiger claws and I'm sure this is legitimate kung fu. I'm not downplaying kung fu, but it just looks kinda silly and it's hilarious when he's like choking her with his two fingers and <laughs> yeah but see that's that's definitely by design um everything about this scene is not by accident or or for comedic relief i i don't think it's it really harkens back to like old you know like shaw brothers films uh you know that early era of, of martial arts movies you know it was all always ridiculous right even even as recently as like uh bruce lee films you know Oh no, it you could definitely see it. Like if you've seen any older kung fu movies, this looks exactly like it. It's even filmed in that I I'm not much of a film aficionado, but what is it, seventy millimeter or the it's kinda grainy. June, our resident film expert would, would know more on that, but it's like filmed in that same style. I think they even had like the audio kind of pop and stuff like that. Yeah, on a, a similar thread to that cinematography one of the things i really liked about this movie is the way the camera work was done there were these shaky zooms or would zoom in on like slightly the wrong part of a person like shift back up to their face uh huge focus changes you'd go from like uma thurman 40 feet in front of pai may and the focus would change to focus on him uh even the camera work was over the top and not in like a Michael Bay kind of way, but in a a self-aware, poking fun and having fun with it kind of way. Yeah, this film was definitely between Crouching Tiger and uh, Kung Fury. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine if Michael Bay did this scene? Like Pai Mei standing in front of an American flag, like the Thunderbirds fly overhead as he kicks her. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, I'm sorry, I just watched Armageddon. What a shithole that was. But <laughs> we'll, we'll reveal it when we get the chance. <laughs> to what you said earlier, June, um, I agree that everything is intentional, but I think some of it is for comic relief. Um, and I think that's okay. I don't know how you could see the scene of her tunneling out of the coffin like a fucking diglet and not say <laughs> that Tarantino did that with no intent of being funny. I don't know, man. Tarantino's a weird dude. I mean, yeah. All right, Uma Thurman. Use dig. I can't contest the point that Quentin Tarantino is a weird dude. But I think there there has to be some awareness that these things are over over the top to the point where they're not too self-serious. Yeah, and I think this movie in particular, but kind of Tarantino in general, it's like, you know, we know his one of his styles is like genre bending. 
But this movie in particular is like he went to one of those DVD clearance racks and like picked out five movies that he liked and like combined bits and pieces of all of them. <laughs> yeah, it really kind of jumps around from like Kung Fu to like Noir, then uh, yeah, but oh, like a detective. It's even it's even deeper than that. I think like in the same vein that most westerns uh like spaghetti westerns in general are modernizations of old like kurosawa and and Mm -hmm. japanese films this is like an even more modern take on those westerns which is in turn based on those you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. yeah but i i definitely think there is an element of turning it up to 11 yeah sure for sure yeah i always want to know what's going on on set because like it's filmed and all the actors and actresses are taking it very seriously but it's funny in a way. So like it's like serious comedy. Like there's no way you could do those scenes without cracking up a couple times, like especially the Pie Mate. Like that actor. Can you imagine <laughs> what he was like getting made up for these scenes and then looking in the mirror and then having to act serious? <laughs> and he's just petting his flicking his beard. <laughs> I'd just be losing my shit. <laughs> so I've never seen the TV show Kung Fu, but I believe that this is probably what it's like. Just like, well, I think that had David Carradine in it, didn't it? Did it? Or he was he was in a old he was in karate a, he movie. He was in a bunch of old yeah. B movies, but it's uh it's it's comedic in the same vein too, though. That like, if we were to go back and and watch a bunch of old martial arts movies, like we'd probably be like, okay, this is ridiculous. Yeah, true. That's fair. Mike, did you want to? Uh, do you have any thoughts on this section before we move on? Yeah, my favorite part of this is when she goes back after she digs her way out of that out of the tomb. Um, she walks across the street to a diner, and there's like a diner across the street from the graveyard, and just walks in and sits down and orders a glass of water, looking like some kind of Shaun of the Dead zombie. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that she does walk away barefoot, and I yeah. don't think she puts shoes on. I don't think she on. puts on shoes the rest of the movie nope (laughs) everyone is goddamn barefoot from here on out i think (laughs) really plays into it i think the pie may scene is literally the last section where we see a shoe (laughs) speaking of quentin tarantino foot fetish this next part has a weird one oh Oh, yeah yeah. does it all right mike tell us what happens all right so in chapter nine this is called l and i this is the next morning after uma thurman has escaped from uh, the grave and we start with L driving through the desert to go and see Bud to buy his Hattori, to buy the Hattori Hanzo sword that he stole from Uma Thurman. She arrives at his trailer with a big bag of money, and they go inside and start discussing um, the sword. Uh, during their interaction, Bud kind of alludes to the fact that they really don't like each other um, and asks what she's going to do now that she's retired, because the only thing really keeping them both active was um, Uma Thurman's character being alive. But now that she's dead... They really have nothing to live for. So Bud takes this big bag of money, opens it up, and it's full of cash. Um, as he's starting to kind of dig through the cash, a uh, there's a snake inside of it that jumps out at him and strikes him in the face. Um, Elle watches this happen. She set up this whole thing and tells Bud that this is a Black Mamba, which is the name that they've been calling Uma Thurman's character. I believe this is the part where we first hear her name as well, right? So, yeah, so then uh, Elle watches him kind of, as he dies on the floor, tells Bud that the biggest thing she regrets is that Uma Thurman char- character was killed by 
him and not her. Um, right then, Bill calls L, and L tells Bill over the phone that Beatrix Kiddo is dead. And that's the first time when we hear Uma Thurman's character's name, who's Beatrix. I don't know why that was covered up, but it was. Afterwards, Elle gathers up the money and the sword, and as she's starting to leave, she opens the door and Uma Thurman attacks her. And a, a, a you know, huge epic fight ensues in this small little trailer where they're trying to use a sword, but it's too small. They're throwing each other through the wall, and at their final showdown, Beatrix sees Bud's Hattori Hanzo sword in his golf bag and pulls it out. And as she faces off with Elle, Elle tells Beatrix that... She lost her eye because uh, Pai Mei plucked it out when she was being uh, disrespectful. And in return, L poisoned Pai Mei and killed him. Um, so at this final showdown, they clash swords and Beatrix takes her other eye out. Her last good eye rips it out of her head, throws it on the ground. And this is where we get that weird Tarantino foot fetish where she kind of smashes it into the carpet um, and then leaves. Yeah, who else but Tarantino would give you a close-up of Uma Thurman's foot smashing an eyeball? Oh. <laughs> oh. I like how he references to a better time when teachers could punish their students. <laughs> it's almost as good as the foot scene from Big Fish. Remind me again, June. <laughs> Danny DeVito. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, the right, the, the foot-scratching face. The intern's foot that scratched <laughs> DeVito's face. Now, um, a couple things with this scene. So, she goes through a whole plan, kills Bud, and in Tarantino fashion, she reads, like, the entire Wikipedia article about Black Mambas. <clears throat> um, but then she goes ahead and collects all the money in the suitcase casually to, to take back. All while this snake is still in this trailer, <laughs> right? Like, I, that's, I don't know if I'd be I'd be doing that. I was thinking that too. Aren't black mambas like highly aggressive, like the territorial? <laughs> I mean, aggressive or not, I ain't fucking casually scooping money up off a trailer floor with a snake inside. <laughs> well, and like her plan, I had some problems with because she obviously planned it to go that way. So, because she wrote down on her pad all the notes so that she could read them <laughs> to him. What if the snake had just buried itself way deep and Bud just looked at the money and went, yeah, it's good. <laughs> what if Bud just said, it's bad. I'll count it later. She's like, no, you should really count at least the top layer. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I believe you. I trust you. It feels heavy. No, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't trust me. <laughs> Don't Hold do a question. Why does she there? just grab it and throw it at him so he gets bit <laughs> so she can read her notes? Why Why was Bud even taking the money out of the bag? What was he going to do with it? He was just counting it, right? Yeah, I think no, he, was he was just like grabbing handfuls of it. Making sure he didn't get fleeced or, you know, he didn't get like a thin layer of stacks on top of a snake. <laughs> and what if the snake didn't bite what if it just hissed and like stood there like scared and Bud backed away like what the fuck what if Bud pulled out his gun and shot her <laughs> I, there's just I, I have a lot of issues with her pl- there's just too many plans parts of this plan that could have gone very wrong what if when packing the snake under money she got bit <laughs> how did she get that snake underneath the money I didn't see any air holes in the suitcase you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's a lot of flaws I just I feel like it would have been easier to shoot him 
then go find a black mamba in Barstow, California, and pack <laughs> it into a suitcase. So, like, <laughs> on the note of shooting him and related to the fight in this trailer, for all of the sword fights in this movie, I don't think anyone actually got killed in one. Like, no one actually... Well, hit yeah, some. We're gonna be we're gonna be pleasantly surprised when we watch Volume One. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they must have hit their quota in the first movie. We'll uh, we'll get to the other scenes later, but in this one, they they have this sword fight that they set up for. But you know, she she kills L by pulling her eye out rather well, than well didn't kill her, just left her alive. I think the idea was that she is now blind in a small trailer with the Black Mamba. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There ain't nothing scarier than being blind in a mobile home with a goddamn snake. <laughs> the uh, so before the the sword fight, uh, they get into a big like martial arts match, I guess, or or they're they're fighting, right? The what I love about the violence in this movie is it's like wildly unrealistic in terms of like you know crouching tiger, hidden dragon style, like unrealistic of how a fight would go down. But the way it's filmed with everything, you feel every blow. Like you can f- feel the the sheer like violence, um, like throwing just... each other through walls, mm-hmm. <laughs> or trying to un- unsheathe her sword where it just hits up against the the bulkheads. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think they even add the the classic like psh, pow, psh, yeah, oh yeah, sounds. <laughs> they, those are Batman comic sounds. But she the the. So Bud had said that he had hawked his Victoria Hanzo sword, but he's had it in his golf bag. (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty great. I thought for one second, because I was like totally thinking about the Tarantino cinema verse, that his sword, when he said he pawned it, I was like, oh my God, is Pulp Fiction in Barstow? Oh, Is that pawn stuff in Barstow? (laughs) (laughs) Didn't even make that connection. Yeah. But it's not, it. it was there, so... I, I feel bad for the paramedics that go to that scene to find a lady with her eyeball plucked out, bit 19 times by an exotic snake. Also, a million dollars just left on the ground. <laughs> a million dollars. Yeah, you know, I don't feel bad for those EMTs. <laughs> you know yeah, They're yeah, like, did you find anything in that trailer? Yeah, ju- just a crazy snake. That's you, it, boss. <laughs> you mean you feel bad for the bonfire that they had afterwards? Because there was no trailer. <laughs> It's like, yeah, there's a trailer, a snake, and uh, five hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> five hundred dollars. A bunch of meth heads in there. Um, the other, uh, the sword fight. Um, that was cool, as it likens back to like Kurosawa samurai films. Um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you guys have seen much of it, but it's not like samurai movies today, where it's just like you know lightsaber style like you're fighting you talk about like seven of, samurai yeah like there was a lot of tension in those duels where the camera cuts back and forth and they're not really doing anything but they're like reading each other and it's like always one blow that ends the yeah fight. they make a strike and a counter strike and that's it yeah and then they like stare again so that was kind of like how it really would be <laughs> yeah so that was a good little uh, uh homage to that except for the little when she pops her eye out <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> I guess Pi May taught her that technique. You got some good uh, good sound effects there, Mike. You got some good foley work. Yeah, she, uh, she's learned a lot from Pi May in this film. Well, so it would seem. And this is how you pluck eyeballs out. 
Oh. And uh, it was a pretty good reference, too, because it seemed like that was kind of the technique she fought Pai Mei with, like the whole tiger crane thing. Oh, yeah. Well, it's also Elle's technique, too, because she killed Pai Mei with a dead fish. She might as well have just used a snake in his fish. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was interesting. It was a very, I you could say, cowardly way for someone who thinks of herself as a, a great warrior. It's it's very indirect. She won't actually fight anybody. This is where we would insert a portion of that I would talk about the first movie, but we're not going to do that. Yeah, I guess I'll never know. <laughs> Hopefully one day we'll see the prequel. I guess I'm saying all this shit that I think is profound, and then, then I'm going to watch the first movie. And <laughs> well, yeah, actually, no Jack. Okay. <laughs> is there anything else we want to cover in this chapter before we move on to the last chapter? Oh, how about Pai Mei dying after living, I guess, thousands of years to just a poison fish head from a student who was pissed off at him? <laughs> Why has Pai Mei lived a thousand years? I don't know, because doesn't Bill say like a thousand years ago, or maybe he was just churching the story up a little bit, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was... Pai Mei could see everything except the bad fish head. Yeah, there was kind of a, in, an inglorious... Uh, ending for him. He's only one chapter. Don't worry about it. <laughs> He's my favorite character in this movie. <laughs> Does it, Jack? Did you grasp like the significance of the Hatori Hanzo? Uh, enlighten me. I mean, there isn't it's much a nice to it. Sword. Yeah, it's just like the nicest sword ever made. I mean, yeah. yeah. What I took away is that there's some incredible swordmaster who swore an oath to never make another sword, and somehow she talked him into it. Oh, you yes, have seen yes. the first movie. <laughs> or I just paid attention to the dialogue in the second. Oh, is Hortonzo a real swordsmith? He was a real like, samurai. Uh, um, don't know if he actually made swords. Yeah. So before I, I'm just, I have this noted here for some reason, and it really more belongs so in the first movie, but I'm gonna forget it if I don't say it. So, Hatori Hanzo is played by Sonny Chiba, who yep. is you know famous for this style of movie right but he uh he isn't in this movie in part two but it's notable that this was not the first time that sunny chiba has played hattori hanzo in a movie oh. um hmm. and then there's a there's a joke later that he has stopped becoming he stopped making swords and is now a sushi chef but he's terrible so there's a joke later on in this movie that's like you still bad at making sushi? <laughs> <laughs> That's in the next yes, chapter. He's still shit. Well, the guy who plays Pai Mei, he's also in Kill Bill Volume 1, just not as Pai Mei. He's as uh, the general of the Crazy 88s. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's the same actor? Yeah. Oh, very cool. It's a fun fact back at you. Oh, nice. Wow. This makes me want to watch Forged in Fire. I thought you were going to watch. Do- I just want to watch people make swords now. Then watch. Okay, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> All right, what's the next chapter? We lose Jack. No, I'm here. Oh. <laughs> Guide us. What's the next chapter, Mike? <laughs> what? Do you want me to say anything in particular? So, so the last the chapter, chapter is. Called- <laughs> know maybe talk about this movie or what happens next (laughs) whatever you want to do mike whatever you feel comfortable with 
All right, the last chapter is called Face to Face, and this is it's almost as half as it's almost as long as half the movie. Um, starts out with Uma, or sorry, we can call her Beatrix now. Beatrix is driving in uh, Mexico, and she is going to a a brothel run by a guy named Esteban Vallejo, um, who is a father figure to Bill. He's a he's a pimp, and he runs a group of people called the Acuna Boys, who are the offspring of prostitutes in his brothel. Um, I don't know why this guy's important in the film, but what he does is he tells Uma Thurman, or Beatrix, where to find Bill, who is hiding away down in Mexico. And the reason he does this is he says Bill would want him to pass along this information. Besides that, that's all we kind of get from this interaction. So Uma then arrives at Bill's estate in Mexico and she comes in with her gun drawn, goes through the living room and surprise, we find Bill with a little girl called Bibi who is their daughter. Not dead, who which would be led to believe in volume one that, uh, that the child had died during her coma and she's alive and well and starts to play a game like Bill has kind of set this whole thing up knowing that Beatrix is going to arrive here. Beatrix plays along, doesn't kill Bill right then, and talks to her daughter for the first time. And as this whole scene's playing out, Bill uses it as an exam- or as a, uh, a good opportunity to explain to Beatrix as well as BB why he did the things he did in a very kind of uh, dad-like manner. He's, he doesn't talk down to anybody. He says things straightforward, but he says it kind of lightheartedly. Really good acting. I think this is where, this is why this takes half the movie to do this because the whole thing is really the, just them talking. It's no longer any action. Um, after they're kind of confronted, Beatrix takes BB to bed, spends some time with her, and after she falls asleep, she returns to the living room to uh, confront Bill by herself. Bill at this point uh, uses a truth serum, shoots her with it. And uh, tells her that he wants some answers before they have their final showdown. The answers Bill's looking for is essentially why she did the thing she did, as well as to let her know that he thinks that she will always be the person that she's going to be, regardless of if she ran away or if she took, if she went and you know got married to this Tommy guy, took the kid and left. And Bill would always kind of be after her and find her. And that's the reason why Beatrix says that she did the thing she did was to get away from Bill and so that Bill couldn't um, control her daughter or her anymore. The last part, after they're done talking, Bill slashes at Uma Thurman, or Beatrix, with the samurai sword, misses, and Beatrix performs the five finger, or the five uh, point, what is it, palm technique, the five point exploding heart technique on Bill, which Pai Mei had taught her as well, uh, but had taught nobody else. Bill stands up, asks how he looks, walks off five feet, and collapses dead in his backyard. And the final scene is Uma with BB in a hotel, and it ends happily. Yeah. So what I want to say is this chapter, I think, is what elevated the movie from being like a pretty good, uh, well-made, sort of pulpy action movie for uh, to something that was really interesting so 
granted, I had very little understanding of <laughs> the fact that Uma Thurman had was pursuing a child. I mean, I kind of kind of clicked together pretty quick, considering she was pregnant in the the first chapter here, chapter six, and uh, there's a child that's about four years old in chapter ten. But I was not expecting a that child to be there and b Bill's behavior. And he's he's a charmer. He's a he's very paternalistic in a convincing way. And he's uh it's it's an interesting situation because he stops being like this the supervillain and just becomes like a someone who in some senses is a fairly reasonable person. Not in other senses, but in some. Well that is his code name, the snake charmer. I thought you were gonna say Mr. Reasonable. <laughs> Mr. Reasonable <laughs> <laughs> No, I kind of actually disagree with you because I felt that his, well, not in any of the sense, the only thing I disagree with is that um, Bill wasn't a very good father in the sense that he was, when when he's doing his breakdown to BB of why he shot Beatrix, he's trying to, there's a, a, a conversation where BB says that she had killed her goldfish recently. And the way oh, yeah. Bill dealt with it was kind of, I don't know, it was kind of oh. grotesque. Like it was almost like he's already training BB to be, very comfortable with with killing things i know he didn't have her kill the fish but the way he made her feel and the whole way the conversation went plays into the fact that beatrix wants to get away from that and he yeah. and he lets her watch violent movies and shogun assassin, <laughs> yeah, shogun assassin. <laughs> yeah. i i just love how like if my daughter came up to me it was like i i squished my goldfish and then like explained to me that she took it out and stepped on it i'd be like I think we need to go to counseling. <laughs> That's some pretty uh, check mark for sociopathic tendencies there. Um. <laughs> so with the the goldfish scene, uh, only Tarantino can pull off this dialogue. Absolutely. I think partially it's you know we've come to expect it from him, but like that whole banter, I, I, there's like a glimmer of depth in there. But other than that, it was just very long rambling. Like, if this scene was in any other director's movie, I'd be like, what the fuck is this bullshit? (laughs) Right? But he does it, too, where, like, Bill's being the typical dad. He's making a bologna sandwich, talking about his daughter murdering her goldfish in cold blood. Yeah, and we we see that throughout, you know, plenty of his other movies. It's like the diner scene in in Pulp Fiction. Like, it's just so long. Oh, yeah. Even (laughs) the really drawn out. When uh, when when Bill's t- uh, talking to Beatrix before this truth serum takes effect, she's sitting on the couch, and she and Beatrix is like, "How long is this going to take for you to explain this, this like this analogy oh, you're yeah. making?" And he's like, "About two minutes." And it legitimately takes two <laughs> minutes for him to explain this analogy. <laughs> and then and then she replies with, "And now we get to the point." Like, <laughs> <laughs> on a, another note, I noticed uh, it's kind of cool how Tarantino sets up Bill in a, a very subtle way like because he says that the Dosecki's guy is his father figure and he's like smooth and charming Dosecki's guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's like smooth and charming but he cuts like the lips off all his prostitutes to talk back to him like he's completely evil he is they're both charming but i mean like you put it they're sociopaths like the the things they're charming talking about it's enough to make you like they're charming enough to make you nod along and agree, and then you have to do like a mental double take. <laughs> yeah. What? Wait a second. Like, what? 
<laughs> like him going to the movie theater where he sees the blonde on the screen and immediately sucks his thumb. That's another thing I'd be like, we're going to go to counseling. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> to, to lead into this, like she puts her daughter to bed and comes down the stairs and the there's that big confrontation. It's But it seems like kind of innocent, right? Like there's tension there, but they're just talking. And then Beatrix lunges at the sword that's uh, sitting on the the table and Bill fires like a warning shot at her, right? And then he does it again. Yo, that little girl sleeping upstairs must have been tired. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, those are real soundproof wicker doors. (laughs) Or or Shogun Assassin was still on like really loud. (laughs) I mean, if she falls asleep watching movies like Shogun Assassin, maybe this just does nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking that too. The whole hotel was probably like, Jesus Christ, what the, what the shit was that? I do like uh, how Bill sets the stage. He's like, let us talk a little bit and then we can do this whole samurai showdown at the beach, you know, at, at dawn or if you want, like a true warrior. And then they ju- he just dies on the patio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was a glorious death. I think you're kind of selling him a little short there. No, but I like how Tarantino set it up. Like you think they're going to grab their swords and walk down to the beach, and it's like, nope. Yeah, it kind of. Also, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, I'll go ahead. Um, that that. Anyway, so what I was going to say is, (laughs) every time we do this joke, I cut it. (laughs) Made it into one. For all our listeners out there, we do this every single episode. <laughs> now you hey, have to leave it. It makes me laugh. That's that's what matters. <laughs> um, but no, like uh, that, I guess it'd be called, a, would it be a monologue or soliloquy? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What a, a big word insert here. He talks about Superman and like Superman's idea of people and that whole thing and i thought that was really cool i never thought about that and then applying that onto the movie was cool too yeah i really liked that too that was clever and i wonder where in the writing process that came up like did quentin tarantino just think of this and he's been looking for a movie to insert it into or did he just need to write some shit that was clever for this dude to say and he just came up with that I feel like Tarantino just Stephen King's the shit out of it and just locks himself in a hotel with like mass amounts of coke and just comes up with brilliant dialogue. I can believe that. For the <laughs> for the listeners, the premise is what makes Superman stand out is that unlike, you know, Bruce Wayne who's all who, you know, is Bruce Wayne but moonlights as Batman, uh Superman is Superman but moonlights as Clark Kent. And his alter ego, Clark Kent, is a mockery of human race, and it's kind of his critique, and he's trying to blend in and be something he's not. And uh, that Beatrix, or Uma's character, is doing the same thing. She's never meant to fit in with people, and she's just trying to in vain. And specifically that she is a killer. Yeah. And she can't get away from being a killer. And Apparently her daughter is, too. What was interesting is the thing that it seemed one of the things Bill wanted to know more than anything else is did Beatrix actually think she could live a life with this dude that she was going to get married to? Like, did she think that would work? I think that says something about Bill 
And the idea that her trying to leave this life is just so alien to him that he doesn't even think she could really even want it or believe it's possible. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, I, we forgot the, the scene on that note, too, where uh, she realizes she's going to leave Bill. Uh, when she's on that hit in L.A. Mm-hmm. That's, and the that assassin. scene was so funny. <laughs> They're having the showdown, and she's like, wait, you're pregnant? I don't believe you. And she's like, no, it's right there. Read the box. And they're it's... going through reading the instructions. I'll read it myself. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, we should probably explain this scene. <laughs> um, so she goes, and I mean, actually, Mike, you explain this scene. Oh, this is one I skipped over. All right, so... She's she's going to go do a hit in L.A. And while she's in the hotel room, she starts to feel ill. So she takes a pregnancy test. And it turns out that she is pregnant. Uh, right then, uh, another assassin was sent to kill her. She must have had her cover blown. And uh, she shows up with a, with a shotgun. And uh, they have this gun battle in this small hotel room. Um, Beatrix tells her, asks her to stop. And to leave because they kind of have beads on each other and uh she says that she's pregnant and if if she just walks out the door she won't pursue her and beatrix will go back and won't won't continue to do the hit and this is where beatrix kind of decides to get out of the game yeah she never comes back from this and this is all framed within this interrogation bill is doing he wants to know why she left because that you know never he never knew and um he didn't even intentionally find her at that wedding. He was trying to track down whoever he thought killed her. But I guess, you know, serendipity. He brought all the guns to the wedding anyway, so may as well, right? <laughs> when in Rome. <laughs> when in Rome. Yeah, that, I mean, that the scene was like so outlandish, but it's just so well done. Um, the The assassin is pretending to be like a hotel concierge, and Beatrix walks up to the door looks out the peephole and then like drops the pregnancy test and like bends down to pick it up right as the shotgun blast like goes above her uh, where she would have been standing. But then it's like the, the just the dialogue, right? Like it's just like, no, I, the pregnancy test is right there. It's like, I don't know what this means. Like, no, well, read the directions. They're on the box. <laughs> She's like reading them out loud. She's like, pee on stick, white tent. Yeah. <laughs> it's like blue means pregnant. Only Tarantino can do this. And he's, he does this in other movies too. This reminds me a lot of the standoff scene from Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's, we got grenades. <laughs> it's this weird blend of funny and tense that I don't really know if I've seen from anyone else. I mean, anyone else that does it at this point is just copying Tarantino, right? Yeah. You know, I know what I find with Tarantino films, I forget that they're good until I watch them. And then <laughs> when just, I watch them, I remember that they're really good. It's just so much fun. You like, you're just always enjoying yourself. But then in two days from now, I'm not going to remember anything about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I only I'm not just gonna, how he meant it. I'm going to be honest. I only vaguely remember part one. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's what I, I noticed about this one is I would say volume two has the best dialogue and acting. But for those who have seen volume one, it's probably the best action. I don't think there's the... any dialogue in volume one. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. So I mean... that was um, 
when I came into this, right, so having seen neither the reputation I knew of Kill Bill is that, you know, they're very violent films. But the actual confrontations in this one are pretty minimal. Like, there's no fight that lasts longer than a few seconds. Um, the fight between uh, Beatrix and Bill is about three or four blows and uh, just a tiny little bit of swordplay before she kills him. And then it goes right back to dialogue before he dies. So um, it's I'm so excited for you to watch part one. <laughs> <laughs> it's so I came into this expecting all this dialogue and <laughs> yeah, like that, that little scene where they're going back and forth with the samurai swords in the, in the seated position. I think that kind of is a, a wink back to volume one when she uh, battles that kangaroo. Couldn't agree more, Mike. Couldn't agree more. Oh, yeah, the, the classic kangaroo samurai duel. <laughs> Just for our listeners, uh, Kill Bill Volume 1 shows up on our list 95 episodes from now. <laughs> so we'll follow up in on this case, in two years. <laughs> we'll have to rewatch Volume 2 to remember what happens after Volume 1. Uh, uh. So going to the end, uh, I have a question. So after... The five-point palm exploding heart technique. Could Bill, in theory, have lived the rest of his days just in a wheelchair? <laughs> I thought the same thing. I was like, does he have to take five steps? Or, like, what if he stutter steps? Does that count as one or two? <laughs> so There's there's a lot of, like... He's just got, he the ministry, got the ministry of silly walks for him to get as far as possible. <laughs> he gets out of bed one day and takes a step. He's like, fuck! <laughs> He trips That's and takes one. two, like, safe steps. He's like, ah! ah. <laughs> Volume three is just Bill trying to avoid the fifth step. <laughs> it's a heartwarming movie about how he learns to live with not being able to walk again. Uh, but yeah, like, does he have to take exactly five? I mean, he does, you know, to die, but could he have just inevitably rolled around in a wheelchair? You know... Science says yes. <laughs> Though I do think his end was really good. He uh he kind of took it with dignity and faced it head on and just literally walked right to it. I like Thank how you. he wasn't that surprised. Like he's just like, well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you liked was... if you liked his death, don't look up David Carradine's death. Oh Jesus! Yeah, not not his uh. The five-stroke exploding heart technique. <laughs> it's a different move. Oh, <laughs> well played. Well played. Oh, fuck. <laughs> R.I.P. David Carradine. What, what were you going to say, Mike? Bring us back here, please. Up from that. <laughs> <laughs> Just bring us back uh, into the realm of publishability. So I was going to say that um, um, a little bit of foresight to Bill's death. Bill was actually, I think, expecting to die this night because throughout the entire conversation from when Beatrix and them first started having their conversation alone, he was he was taking shots, like mm. double shots of tequila until that bottle was empty. And at the very end, you can see the last shot he pours is only half a shot, which means he, he finished off that entire bottle of tequila and was even slurring his words a little bit. So in other words, he, 
He was ready. To, he, was, <laughs> he was getting drunk to die. He, he could have won that fight if he was sober. That's a very oh. that's a very interesting point. Hmm. He even said that the thing that surprised him the most after he shot Beatrix was that it made him sad. Yeah. Do you think he had it in him to kill her? I think he, I mean, he, he thought he did, but then yeah. when he actually did it, he regretted it immediately and knew he couldn't do it again. Yeah. Well, so not in the church, but in this night in the finale, do you think he could have? No, I think he was getting hammered drunk because he knew he was going to lose this fight. I think he, now that you bring that up, I think it was um, on both ends. Like, I don't think he, uh, he knew he like didn't have the technical capability like the martial arts capability to defeat her and then both the emotional capability agreed also i thought the little comment about the truth serum that's followed by ecstasy and like she never shows ecstasy until it's all over and him as well so i think that's kind of a nod like they were only going to be happy once it was finished wow yeah holy shit shane said that (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Also, them feet, though. (laughs) But, yeah. In the way that uh, this movie is references a lot of other movies, there's some points that are very, like, on the nose. Um, The five-point palm exploding heart technique appears word for word in uh, two Shaw Brothers films from, like, the 70s and 80s. Is that... um... Is that on the nose, or is that just kind of a, just linking the movies together? Sorry, I didn't mean like it. It was like, you know, I guess but, on the nose was a bad thing, but it was like, yeah, a, a outright reference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wait, are you telling me that it's not a real technique? <laughs> Some people who write books about this shit would uh, disagree and say that it is a real technique. But <laughs> see, what I took away from this was this was actually inspired by um, Hot Rod. And the scene where uh, Rod <laughs> hits the pressure points on his stepfather to make him shit his pants. <laughs> it's it's a similar technique. So Bill didn't actually die in that scene. <laughs> shit his pants. <laughs> shit his pants and fell over. He just collapsed. He's like, <laughs> you bitch. <laughs> you bitch. Oh my god. Anything else we want to talk about this last chapter before we kind of bring it around to discuss the whole movie? How about that weird musket-looking gun that Bill had? Oh, his... Was that a suppressed revolver? I think so. That gun wasn't suppressed. Uh, it, it just, yeah, it looked different, but I like how he's kind of hold Like, he had it, like, in a holster like a cowboy, and he kind of drew from the hip, too. Kind of that classic Western thing. Yeah, there was a lot of time spent on that, just from a the scene's perspective. This, this, yeah. I mean, just another example of how this pulls from uh, westerns, you know, which pull from samurai films. But yeah, as we kind of come back around to talk about the movie as a whole, um, I think one thing that's interesting here is, as we're talking about this, this just makes me want to watch other Tarantino movies more, because this just feels so uh, quintessentially or... Quentin Centrally, Tarantino. Oh, <laughs> oh you've been waiting all podcasts to say that. I actually just came Nailed up with that it. one. Um, <laughs> but I think on a, a serious note, it is interesting how we've seen a lot of movies from really famous and really prolific directors like Stanley Kubrick, Orson Welles, 
two by Tim Burton, but maybe with the exception of Nightmare Before Christmas, none have really felt as inseparable from their director as Kill Bill does. Well, just remember the order we're going in. According to IMBD, they should be getting better. Yeah. I mean, it's I, I don't know if I'm concerned so much as better or worse, but, <laughs> you know, like, um, the killing didn't feel like a Stanley Kubrick movie, right? And, um, you know, the only one that feels so essentially linked to the director besides this one is, in my opinion, Nightmare Before Christmas, to the point where it's hard to talk about kill bill without talking about it being a quentin tarantino movie if that makes sense absolutely absolutely and if i'm gonna put you know tarantino kubrick and a burton in a celebrity death match (laughs) i'm going tarantino all day oh yeah you don't know what goes on in tarantino's mind he that man can kill (laughs) you know i also I, i really like his dialogue you know that's what we mentioned before but it must be a nightmare to just have a conversation with that guy Oh, God, right? It's like, hey, yeah. man, you want a pizza or a burger? Well, the thing about pizza... <laughs> you ever been to Pizza Hut? <laughs> you ever ordered the pepperoni with cheese? You know what they call I pepperoni used to order that all the time when I was nine years old. <laughs> yeah. Soccer practices. Jesus! <laughs> it's this weird mix of... The dialogue is so Tarantino, but it's not to the point where it's... Um, like who's the director that is terrible about this Joss Whedon where every character is like super clever and witty and every character in every movie talks the same way and it's fun and it's clever, but it's all the same with Tarantino. It's, it's distinct. Like the characters are written and they have individuality, but it still just feels so Tarantino that it's hard for me to separate this movie as like a work of its own. Yeah. Yeah, The devil's literally in the details with him. Now, I will say back to my first point about him is like, I would say like 50% of people will not like it, you know? You know, I don't know. You have to have it. Yeah, you have to have the taste. Like if you don't have the appreciation for the style or taste, then it can just be annoying and constant. Yeah, And it was the same thing with like Hateful Eight, you know, that was such a slow movie, but I enjoyed every minute of it. Whereas I could definitely see people being like, dude, that was so boring. (laughs) and it's simply just that you know they don't either know or particularly enjoy tarantino's style mike did you have any thoughts you want to share about the whole movie before we move on to rankings the entire movie just any any closing thoughts yeah just take us from the top to the end yeah what happens in this movie (laughs) let me just look at my notes so moon shoveler (laughs) (laughs) that's the title of this episode that was my first note well well put so now comes our favorite part and the most important part of our podcast where we rank these movies ourselves so these movies uh came to us in an order determined by the good people of imbd now it's our turn to impose our own rankings on the world we've seen 14 films thus far not counting this one and now it's up to us to decide where this falls in our lists. June, where do you put this one? Are we intentionally saying IMBD now? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Maybe. I was like, is this some sort of copyright issue? <laughs> um, okay. I am going to... <laughs> where do you put it, June? 
I am going to put this movie at number four between Fiddler on the Roof and Ratatouille. Mm. Yeah. Um, very good movie. I don't particularly... I, I, I just can't compare it, though, to, like, her or Big Fish or even Fiddler, you know? Um, but the... What what my favorite part about this movie is it's so meta that it doesn't even know it's meta, if that makes sense. Like Yeah, it's like inadvertently meta. Like aside from the fact that it's an exploitation film, it's an exploitation film exploiting exploitation films. Yeah, it's right? it's somehow both self aware and blissfully unaware of what yes. it is. Yeah. And uh one of the things I noticed is, you know, this this picks up almost immediately after volume one ends and uh another tarantino ism is uh he'll like generally start with a climactic scene and then go back and fill in the plot right like through flashbacks or whatever if if i remember correctly volume one was pretty mindless like it was a lot of action and violence with very little substance and uh it's almost like volume two was that flashback or like that goes back and fills in the plot of volume one. Well, even Uma Thurman at the beginning said the reviews that was the like when to break the fourth wall during the first scene, Uma Thurman's driving along explaining the plot of the first movie and brings in the critic reviews of it saying that it was mindless, like unadulterated action. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's right. I liked her car too. What car was that? The pussy wagon? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, what was that? Um, no, the the baby blue one. Was it Someone a Volkswagen Googled or a Porsche? To find out. Um, so Shane, where do you put this one? Alright. This one's tough for me, because I, I have a natural bias towards Tarantino. So upon reflection it didn't make me cry like Big Fish did. So I got to put it third under Big Fish and between Sleuth. So between Sleuth and Big Fish at number three. Okay. What do you think, Mike? Uh, Kill Bill is my type of movie. I actually watched this one twice for this podcast. So it's going as number two right under Big Fish. Wow. Uh, Something finally toppled Maltese Falcon for you, huh? (laughs) You didn't even like Maltese Falcon. (laughs) Maltese Falcon honestly should be a lot lower. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) And this is... Mike's list should be taken with seven grains of salt. (laughs) (laughs) And two sleuths. (laughs) As far as where I put this, you know, especially listening to some of the discussions we've had in the past about movies that really blew me away, I think what really sets movies apart into the the very top tier for me are the movies where it really makes you think about things, really touches a nerve that, um, you know, you weren't expecting to feel something in. And I don't feel like this one quite reaches that level, but I do think it's just about the best movie I've seen that doesn't. So I put it at number four, just behind Sleuth and ahead of Ratatouille. So real quick, let's backpedal and talk a little bit about how this movie did. Uh, We'll let June sort this all out in post. Forgot to talk about uh, the movie's performance. 
Um, so like we mentioned, this is part two of what was originally conceived as a single movie. And um, it had a budget of about 30 million and brought in 152 million. So definitely kind of nearing that blockbuster territory. And for 2004, this may be about as close to a blockbuster as you get outside of something like Star Wars. So do you know if it was filmed all at once and then cut up and released in two parts? Yeah, so that's my understanding is um, Kill Bill... Yeah, they, they were produced simultaneously and they were supposed to be released together, but it, the runtime was over four hours, so they split okay. it into two. So was the budget of this... Was the $30 million for both uh, volumes or just uh, volume two, do you know? You know, good question. Uh, thinking about it, it must have been. Like, I'm looking at the budget for volume one, and it's listed the same. Well, it'd be tough to split them because the the filming cost, but then the marketing cost would be different for each. Sounds like grounds for an audit. Because they'd have to... <laughs> <laughs> These numbers aren't adding up. Hollywood accounting, huh? <laughs> so as far as reception goes um super well regarded uh like an 84 percent on rotten tomatoes as far as accolades it didn't really get up for any super significant awards at least it's uh not like a oscar nominee or winner in anything um couple nominations for golden globes but of course those aren't really like the the gold standard no one even knows what those are yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to give it something here. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, generally well-regarded. Um, maybe not the most uh, um, accomplished movie review- we've reviewed so far, but it's it's definitely not a slouch in that regard. Um, now let's hop back around. I wonder how it did in DVD sales. Uh, Wikipedia knows. Because I bet it made a, a good buck outside the theater too since it's like a cult classic or all his films are kind of culty in a way yeah there's not like specific numbers on it but um yeah i mean the logic seems sound to me shane How's that? i never thought i'd say that to you but <laughs> anyway right. so kind of the final litmus test here do we as reviewers recommend our listeners to watch this movie mike why don't you start only if you watch it first and then watch volume one later. <laughs> Damn you, you took it from me. <laughs> Shane? Yeah, definitely watch this film. It's badass. June? Yes, absolutely. I will contradict Mike and say the experience is probably improved having watched the first one first, but I do recommend <laughs> watching it. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> he literally has no idea. It could be worse. We'll we'll find out how the experience is watching the uh, volume one second in about two years. How was those credits for you? I actually turned it off before going all the way through the credits. I oh. I, I got a you might say like a, a teaser trailer of what happens in volume one, but I I decided I was not going to watch those to avoid spoilers. Follow us next week when we watch Peter Jackson's Return of the King. <laughs> watch stanley kubrick's 2002 (laughs) (laughs) two space two odyssey apocalypse later but yeah that's uh that's that's kill bill volume two and join us next week june what's next on the menu for us oh god all right so next week's movie is 1977's annie hall 
going in with some preconceived notions about that movie. Oh boy. Is this uh, one also by Tarantino? <laughs> if only. All right. <laughs>